I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Toppling Teddy Roosevelt edition. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. On today's show, The Five Bloods is the latest Spike Lee movie. It tells the story of four black veterans returning to present-day Vietnam, where their bodies and spirits were all but broken, as one of them says, fighting in a moral war for rights we didn't have. And then, The Twilight of the Idols, here we are, Confederate statues are being torn down by protesters. As a long overdue blow, some say, I would say, against the legacy of treason and hate, for which Trump just vowed it's coming over the wires, a criminal retribution. We'll be joined by New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie to discuss. And finally, we still need comfort. Maybe we need it more than ever. So Julia delivered it this week with her pick, uh, Center Stage, for a comfort movie, a dance movie to end all dance movies from the year 2000. I cannot wait to talk about it. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, who's the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hello. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who is uh, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey. Hey, Stephen. Shall we dig in? Everyone ready? Ready. All right. Awesome. The Five Bloods tells the story of four black ex-servicemen returning to present-day Vietnam, a place that nearly destroyed them. Okay, but a Spike Lee's movie makes abundantly uh, and excruciatingly clear it was really the empire known as America that set upon their bodies and spirits, forcing them to fight a war that white middle-class children had skipped out on and for a country that otherwise granted them almost no, if not no, dignity. Uh, And then almost more brutally, to live forever after with the trauma and neglect of having fought it. Now they've returned, four of them that is, played by Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and Norm Lewis. There is a fifth blood, their beloved and heroic squad leader Norman, who was killed in Vietnam on a recon mission the five of them went on. The four have returned to the jungle to reckon with what they found and lost there. I do not want to spoil it, but let's just say it's part epic filmmaking, part documentary pastiche, part history lesson, part glorious harangue, therefore, aka all Spike Lee. The movie also stars Chadwick Boseman as Norman, Melanie Thierry, Johnny Nguyen, and Jonathan Majors. He of Last Black Man in San Francisco. Awesome to see him again. Let's listen to a clip. Hey, y'all remember those Gazy Rambo movies? Sly. Yeah? I like them shits, man. You gotta be fucking kidding me, man. Him and that that dude, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Nice sitting in the back. And out there trying to save some imaginary POWs. Yeah, all them Hollywood motherfuckers trying to go back and win the Vietnam War. Yeah, I would be the first cat in line if there was a flick about a real hero. You know, one of our blood, somebody like Milton Olive. Yeah, and that man jumped on that grenade and saved his blood's life. And he was the first brother to be awarded a Medal of Honor in Nam. Yeah. 18 years old. Hey, look, I love y'all and all that bullshit, but uh, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Nobody wants you to die for them. Because I ain't. Like Aretha saying, you better think. Dana, let me start with you. Uh, Spike Lee has made his Vietnam epic, uh, I'd say, but instead of Gimme Shelter playing as, you know, bombs fall out of American helicopters, we hear Marvin Gaye. We often hear Marvin Gaye, uh, the vocal track, the isolated vocal track of uh, some Marvin Gaye protest songs, i.e. Spike Lee really made his Vietnam epic. Uh, what'd you make of it? Oh, man, there's so much. I feel like we need to devote the whole show just to this movie, just because there's so much to say about it. It's two and a half hours long, right? It's sprawling and shaggy. Um, Even in that little clip we heard, you can hear at least two of the different 
tones that it strikes and that it, you know, really freely moves between, which is that that clip starts out as this sort of bucket list style, you know, codgers on a journey kind of comedy, which is a lot of this movie too, a lot of, you know, repartee and banter among these four old guys with this bond. Um, There's sort of a lot of character comedy to kick it off. But then there's this didacticism that pops up in the middle of it that's really um, sometimes extremely direct. Like, for example, when they mention Milton Olive and identify him as the first black recipient of a Medal of Honor in the Vietnam War, uh, Spike throws up a picture of him, a photograph of him, and I think even maybe his, his name his, and, and dates on the screen or something like that. And throughout, the movie has this kind of toggle in between almost, you know, African-American studies, history lesson, and you know, heist movie, adventure, sort of Treasure of the Sierra Madre style journey, which, by the way, this movie references really explicitly in several scenes. It's apparently Spike Lee's favorite movie, uh, the John Huston film about something similar in a way, right? These um, people in search of a buried treasure and how the search for the treasure kind of turns them against each other. So, yeah, I mean, th- and that's just two of the movies that I mentioned. There's the bucket list side, <laughs> there's the didactic side, but there's so much more that I'm sure that we'll get to. There's moments when it's a, a flat-out war movie, and, of course, there's the, um, the the flashback sequences and the structure that we'll get into, the sort of two temporal zones that mm-hmm. it runs in. Right. Um, Julia, In the as I understand it, in the development phase of the movie, it was two separate scripts. It was a script... Uh, with white protagonists, a way more straightforward adventure epic. It was set, as I understand it, to be directed by Oliver Stone about going back into the jungle for treasure. And it was combined with a script written by Spike Lee and a writing partner about you know the agonizing subject of black servicemen in Vietnam and the, the legacy of that. Um, both the experience of it in flashbacks, as Dana says at the time, and the experience since on the you know, absolutely tormented psyches of, of specifically black uh man who fought in the war what'd you make of it did it cohere for you what did what'd you make of it as a film i really loved this movie although it is like a treasure chest stuffed full with like too many things the wrong shapes and you can't really figure out how they all fit into it but i had an experience watching it that i almost never have watching anything right now which is like the second it started i was like i'm putting down my phone like, and I, you know, I mean, in general, I try to not be looking at other stuff while I watch stuff, especially the stuff we talk about here. But I usually have to like forcibly put my phone in another room to avoid the like two screen, like, oh, let me just see what's happening on Twitter. And I just felt compelled by it for all its shagginess and its ranginess and its 20 different things in the thing quality. I don't know. I just wanted to be in its company and I wanted to be in its vision. And maybe it's just that at this particular moment in history, having a good sit down with Spike Lee and letting him remix some history and some cinematic history for you felt like a really valuable way to spend my time. Um, But I felt very compelled by it for all that it um, structurally is probably not what you would like teach in a screenwriting course. Yeah. Uh, I I come out, I think, where where you do, Julia. It's, I mean, it's a Spike Lee movie, so it is shaggy, didactic, melodramatic, and in this instance, quite violent. Um, But, you know, at the heart of it all are these, I think, are these performances as yoked to Lee's vision. And especially there's Delroy Lindo as Paul. And the movie, in some sense, is about the broken mind of Paul. He's the one of the four who's most whose psyche is most destroyed by the effects of having fought in the war and as a consequence he's 
deeply paranoid about everything that's happening around him. And as his son indicates, you know, played by Jonathan Major, as his son indicates, you know, his mind is really legitimately slipping. And the tragedy of the movie is that he's actually right, right? That that his paranoia t- turns out to have keenly understood exactly how the world is working and how the script is always that they get fucked in the end. And you need a big, capacious, incoherent, incredibly angry movie to give you the reality of that psyche in its decomposition and to tell the story of the historical story of how you end up breaking a man like Paul. And Linda is just a great American actor. And to see him given this part and do with it what he did is is just astonishing. And I loved Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's a movie I've really pushed on people. And I'm I I hope this is an indication that Spike Lee loved it too for casting, you know, majors in this movie because he's I I just think he's amazing in it. The one thing I, I have to bring up though, the Manic Pixie Mind Diffuser, played by the French actress, that is a serious misstep. Melanie Thierry does with with it what she can, but there there are even odd moments where she seems to laugh and smile at the lines that she's forced to say. In a way, um, it's the one part where the glorious messiness of the movie becomes slightly inglorious. But otherwise, you know, it's a it's a Spike Lee movie. It's meant to overwhelm you in a way. And um, you know, and one thing I'll say very quickly too is he joins Tarantino and and. Scorsese in having been given you know a very very large canvas on which to paint this kind of a you know picture and there's a there's a kind of wonderful thing that, that filmmakers of that stature are being given that opportunity and he certainly took it and did something extraordinary Steve I have a couple responses to that one I'm glad that you you called out the uh, the manic pixie bomb diffuser girl but in general I would say that Women in Spike Lee movies are not usually the most richly written characters. And, you know, this is obviously a war movie about four dudes going back to um, to their combat experience. So it's going to ex- exclude female characters for that reason. But the women that do appear around the edges in this movie, I think all to some degree play a manic pixie, smiling, sweet, supportive role. And um, that's something to be remarked on. Um, so I'm glad you did. But as for the huge sprawling canvas, and maybe this goes back to what Julia was saying about wanting to put her phone down and focus, I felt a lot of sadness seeing this movie that it didn't get to open in theaters as it was meant yeah. to because it's such an immersive and big kind of experience, and it does so much with the screen, right? I mean, we haven't mentioned sort of what this movie looks like, but there's all this cinematic kind of playfulness is sort of the wrong word because um, it, it happens for reasons that aren't necessarily playful, but the aspect ratio of this movie is always changing to indicate what time frame we're in, right? That's one way that we know that we're in the past in Vietnam rather than the present. But the reason that he needs to have tricks like the aspect ratio changing to clue you in on what time frame you're in is because he doesn't de-age his actors digitally, nor does he cast younger actors as them. And that just seems like a big thing that we haven't mentioned yet, that when we see the Mm -hmm. four old codgers back in the day, and in those scenes, you will also see Chadwick Boseman, who is their comrade that they're going back in part to, to find his remains. Um, he's young. Chadwick Boseman is still, you know, the age that he would have been when they were fighting, but they're all old. And it only takes a couple scenes to get used to that. And once you do, it's just, it seems like the most simple yet profound decision yes. on Spike Lee's part, right? I mean, just seeing their more grizzled faces alongside the face of this guy who never made it out. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just the scope of it. I mean, it's another case where Spike Lee pitched this movie all around town and the only people who would fund it was Netflix. And it's a case where the economics of streaming allowed a brilliant director a bigger canvas than he might have gotten otherwise. And even Spike Lee said that in some ways the decision to have the older actors in the flashback scenes was like, I knew they wouldn't give me the extra $100 million to do the de-aging you know, unsaid in his quote on this was that they gave Marty Scorsese. Um, but, you know, the notion that that when you're thinking about the past, you're kind of projecting your present self into the past and the people who didn't get to live to have a present self are kind of and uh, frozen in, in time turns out to be a really powerful choice, but it's also a choice with economics behind it, of course. But no, I love that. And the other, I mean, there's so many great actors in this movie but Delroy Lindo, whom I've recently been spending a lot of time with in the company of The Good Fight, um, is just as good as everybody is saying. So extraordinary in this and is someone who is being mentioned as an Oscar contender. And I mean, we'll get to this in our plus segment about the postponement of the Oscars till April. But um, I do hope that this movie coming out when it has doesn't uh, absent him from the conversation when awards roll back around. I mean, I would just send people to watch this because it's just really good to be in Spike Lee's brain for a few hours at this particular moment in time. But I did not like the score at all. The Marvin Gaye stuff was amazing, but the score seemed really like I did not get what the score was doing. And then in reading a bunch of reviews after I saw it, 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 it the score seemed kind of hokey to me and like over loud and over present. Um, and then I read all these reviews that were like, Terrence Blanchard's remarkable score. So Dana, score whiz, school me. Am I a dope? I just, I, I, I didn't like it. Well, you know me, I like a sparely used score. I mean, to me, it was just that it was too present. At times, I almost thought, and maybe this is what people are saying is brilliant about it, and I just didn't pick up on this, but maybe it was being used ironically or something, right? I mean, there's moments that they're doing things that are extremely unheroic, and it's scored to heroic music that are funny. Like there's a, a use of Ride of the Valkyries, right? The Wagner piece made famous by the helicopter scene in Apocalypse Now. And uh, and they're kind of paddling down this this river in a riverboat. And it's, it's a very codger moment where nothing violent or exciting is happening, but that music is playing. And that's a fun use of music. As Steve said, lifting just Marvin Gaye's voice out of what's going on without any of the background is such a beautiful choice. And it sounds almost like like a gospel singer or something when he's when he's isolated like that. But you're right. When the symphonic score kicks in, it always felt like it was just cluttering up the works to me. And perhaps what was intended was here is a big symphonic war movie style score for this atypical war movie that's exploding various stereotypes. But to me, the music just felt like it was part of the stereotypes. So I tend to agree. All right. Slightly vindicated in my distaste. All right. Well, the movie is The Five Bloods. It's on Netflix streaming. It's um, it's an amazing experience. And watch it and tell us what you thought about it. All right, keep moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, of course, we talk about business uh, roughly around now in the podcast. Dana, what do you have? 
Uh, just a couple items. First of all, we wanted to remind you all about Summer Strut. This is our annual feature where we devote a whole show to listener-sourced music. And you can send us songs that you love to have in your earbuds when strutting along on a summer day, socially isolated from your friends, but enjoying their company nonetheless. And uh, we will compile those into a Spotify playlist, make that available to you. And after we've had a while to get familiar with it, we will discuss our favorites with Slate's Beloved pop critic and Billboard chart expert Chris Malanfi, this is always one of our favorite shows of the year to record, and it's because you send us great songs. So please send your favorite summer songs to culturefest at slate.com. Put something in the subject line about summer strut, you know, music for the strut list, etc., so that we know where to compile it. And uh, we will let you know when that episode happens. I think it'll probably be sometime in the next month. Another upcoming episode will be our discussion of the book The Great Influenza by John Barry, which is a history of the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, we thought that that might help us understand something about the current moment we're living through. And, you know, it's just it's something that is a huge part of American history that I, for one, had never been taught or learned anything about. So if you want to buy The Great Influenza by John Barry or check it out from your library, you can get it as an ebook, you can get it as an audiobook. And uh, we'll all discuss it sometime later this summer. I'm being vague because it's a big-ass book, and I'm not sure we're, we're, when we're going to finish it. But so far, it's, it's been really good. And for our Slate Plus segment today, we are going to talk about the Oscars. The Academy just announced that they're pushing the award ceremony to April, later than it's ever been, making the entire movie season a strange jumble. Uh, we don't know what movies will be released when, whether they will open in theaters, if anyone will go to theaters to see them. And in general, you know, the pandemic is screwed with everything. And one of the things it's screwed with is the movie industry. So with Julia's help as someone who edits entertainment coverage for the Los Angeles Times, we're going to try to understand what it means that the Oscars are now in April. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, of course, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. As we've been mentioning for the last few shows, the current crisis has caused a real budget crunch at Slate. It's caused a reduction in spending, pay cuts for people. They're now doing a work share program, trying to figure out different ways that we can keep turning out the best journalism we can under some really adverse conditions. So Slate Plus memberships are really important to us right now. If you want to support Slate Podcasts and all of the journalism on this website, you can sign up for a Slate Plus membership at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, you'll get ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus-only content, and lots of other benefits to explore. Sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. Thomas Jefferson, Christopher Columbus, Robert E. Lee's statues are either coming down or being, let's just say, added to, improved instead of vandalized. Uh, news is breaking that Teddy Roosevelt is being taken off the steps of the Natural History Museum. And just now, this morning, as we record, Andrew Jackson, Trump's favorite president, was set upon near the White House, provoking Trump to threaten long jail terms. We're right now joined by Slate veteran and New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie. Hey, Jamel, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, you opened your recent column about the statues with the following sentence, and I'd love to have you explicated a little more for our listeners. It doesn't necessarily follow that a nationwide protest over police brutality would, for some, become a reason to take action against Confederate statues and other controversial monuments. You go on to explain why it does follow in a way. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're looking at these protests super narrowly, then, you know, a statue of Robert E. Lee doesn't really have much to do with police brutality. But I think if you're looking at these protests thematically, that they're not simply about George Floyd, but they're and they're not even simply about, you know, Black Lives Matter as a larger movement, but they're very much about trying to challenge 
a version of American history, trying to challenge a uh, sort of conception of American life that is narrow and exclusive and does not have room for black Americans, does not have room for Native Americans, um, does not have room for all sorts of other groups, then, yeah, Robert E. Lee statue is a totally natural target, right? Because those monuments don't, they're not history, right? They don't, they don't educate anyone about anything. They're very much memorialization and they're memorialization of people for causes that we rightfully see as uh, wrong and evil um, and with no place in the public sphere. And, and as you point out that there there is a history to these statues, it doesn't have to do with the founding of the Civil War. It has everything to do with when those statues were erected and put into the public spaces that they're now in. They're, and when you know that history, you know that they're about the birthright privilege of whites, especially over public spaces in this country. Right. So you mentioned the, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, statue that has been removed from a museum, museum I cannot recall at the moment. Natural um, History Museum. But like, right, you look at that statue... And it's not the statue isn't of Teddy Roosevelt, the conservationist. It's not a statue of Teddy Roosevelt, the trust buster, right? Like it's a statue of Teddy Roosevelt on a horse leading uh, in submissive pose, uh, a Native American and a black person. It's like very clearly the statue of Teddy Roosevelt, the imperialist um, who believed that uh, whites had sort of were going to dominate the world. And part of his, you know, part of his ideology was that this was well and good. And it's totally good to take down that statue. That's like, those are not values we want to honor. Uh, and so when I see in these conversations claims that this is some kind of an attack on history, it just, it just doesn't jive. And that's sort of setting aside the fact as well that at the time when many of these monuments and memorials were put up, large parts of the public weren't part of the polity, right? They didn't have any input on what the what the community was going to memorialize, even though they were part of that community. Yeah, Jamel, reading you and just having noticed in the, in the couple weeks since you, you published this essay, how this, this is sort of widening out in concentric circles, right? It started out with the Confederate statues in the South and then moved to Christopher Columbus, a figure from a completely different history. And then, you know, now we're seeing Teddy Roosevelt, Andrew Jackson. I think there was even a George Washington monument that was either taken down or defaced somewhere. And it's really made me think about the the status of public art as a way of propping up power and the way that, you know, when we see footage of another country being, quote, liberated, right? I mean, when we went into Iraq, there was that kind of iconic piece of footage of a statue of Saddam Hussein being torn down, or you see, you know, Soviet statues being torn down. It just seems like the moment that we're in, which feels like a revolutionary moment, is all about toppling these these figures. And then just last night, I was reading a great Twitter thread about Goodson Borglum, the the sculptor who made Mount Rushmore, and the fact that he was allied with the KKK and was this kind of white supremacist, which I had no idea about. I mean, I was aware that that is a a controversial piece of public art because it's on sacred land, etc. But I didn't know that it was so directly connected with, with white supremacy. So I'm wondering how you see those circles widening out and whether you think there's going to be a real debate about, you know, what public art is for in the wake of this. So a thing I, I keep thinking about and returning to as this expands to figures like Washington or Grant, people who I, I would probably end up defending um, public art of, I think of this uh, bit from Dave Chappelle's 2004 special 
and he is imagining a conversation uh, between him and a friend where they go back in time and they see George Washington and his friend who is white says, hey, Dave, look, it's George Washington, the father of our country. What a great man. And Dave says, uh, oh, shit, look, it's George Washington and runs because he's afraid of being enslaved. Um, And I I think that that bit sort of captures really, really in a really concise way how the people we venerate in public space have these and always have had these incredibly contested legacies. And what makes this present moment different than 50 years ago or 100 years ago is that people who had been excluded from the conversation now have an opportunity to actually contest those legacies in the public space and make a claim about what ought to be in the public space. I think to to a degree what we're seeing is what integration looks like. And integration isn't simply the incorporation of people into a pre-existing story, but it is an attempt to integrate two separate stories and understandings of the country. And when it comes to a Washington or a Grant, I think that means that there are going to be a lot of people who say, you know, for as much as you want to honor Washington for these things, I don't, I cannot look past the fact that he was uh, a slave owner his entire life, that he actively pursued enslaved people, that he sold enslaved people, that he participated in something which he knew at the time was wrong and against the values he expressed. Um, I think what that means isn't, if if you're someone who feels uncomfortable with sort of the tearing down of statues, that's, I think, valid and, and all right. But I think it means we should understand that all of this is going to be heavily contested and the contestation isn't necessarily going to look, you know, civil and orderly. It's going to be uh, disruptive and messy in part reflecting the fact that many of these things were put up in moments for which people who were on the outside would say, oh, that's disruptive and messy for us because we're the excluded. Right. I mean, one thing that's really been hard for me in trying to empathize with the people who are freaking out about the statues coming down is just the statue of the human political figure from the past as a form of public art is like not a form of public art I can get excited about anyway. I mean, they're always sort of political statements as pieces of art, as aesthetic things. Like, have you ever been moved by looking at a statue of a human form standing on a pedestal staring into the middle distance? Like, and maybe that's just my interior modernist and I'm more moved by shapes than human forms. But anyway, I've I've been not full of sympathy for the people who are sad that the monuments are coming down. And the physicality of it and the act of changing the landscape seems like a really powerful way to mark what I am hopeful is a broadening of the conversation about racial equality and inequality in this country because making it physical and making it present and actually changing the landscape of the world feels feels like it aligns with the broader message of the moment, which is that history compounds injustice and that the structural inequities that build up over time and the decades of people who've walked past the statues of Lee that changing those things, even if it is symbolic, that that is in and of itself a powerful symbol, and it's as powerful a symbol as putting the statue up in the first place. You know, I, I think that's right, and 
one of the things I would like to see happen in terms of the conversation is for people to really think critically about whether we want monuments and memorials to singular individuals in the first place. There's there's simply no, especially the kinds of people we'd be honoring generally, presidents, you know, lawmakers of various sorts, there's no way to do that in an uncomplicated way. Um, you know, I forget where it happened, but some protesters knocked down a, statue, a, a bust of Ulysses S. Grant. Um, I think Grant is a figure for which you can have a lot of admiration, someone who, um, you know, even by the standards of the time, had his he- head and heart in the right place, defeated the Confederacy, enforced civil rights laws, crushed the, the Klan in its first iteration. Like, there's, that's a record uh, that one looking for a more inclusive version of U.S. history should be proud of. On the other hand, it's true Grant owned an enslaved person. He manumitted him very quickly, but you cannot avoid the fact of that. Grant helped spearhead the Indian Wars, sort of facilitating the expansion of the U.S. into territory it did not own and facilitating the killing of a lot of people. Uh, if you are a Native American, Grant's record does not look uh, so great. And so if you're going to put up a statue of Grant, how exactly do you contextualize that? Because the, the very act of putting up a statue of this person on a pedestal suggests that the person's legacy is something that is uncomplicated, but it's not. And I would like to see folks grapple with, do we need these sorts of things to begin with? Not that we have to take all of them down, but if we're thinking about future monuments and memorials, why not memorialize and build monuments to events, right? To things that, you know, involve more than one person, to things, to movements, to to things that really, I think, better capture what we're aspiring for when we erect these things. And are it's much more in keeping with kind of the fact that this is a democratic country um, built on the collective action of individuals. One of my favorite memorials ever is in D.C., and it's the African-American Civil War Memorial at the African-American Civil War Museum. And it, it's just um, a, a small, a small-ish statue of a group of Black Union Army soldiers. And it very much communicates a sense that this was a collective struggle. And that, to me, is a much more compelling form of memorialization than, you know, a singular black soldier or, you know, a statue of Abraham Lincoln. Tim, I wanted to ask you, because you've written so much about Grant in particular, uh, but in general about this subject, there was a huge shift, which you've written about from what was called the Dunning School, sort of to the Foner School. I mean, a lot of people have written about Reconstruction, but a a total a total shift in the history and historiography surrounding Reconstruction. That story got retold in a new and completely vital and much more empirical way. But in the last five years, I've detected a- another shift, maybe, which is that it's a-, a total lack of embarrassment about saying the North did not defeat the South in the Civil War. The United States of America defeated treasoners who deserved you know, to be hanged. And absent that kind of truth and reconciliation, we live in a a kind of awful moral muddle about what that war was, almost as if it didn't resolve in the proper way because of redemption, the failure of, you know, ultimate failure of reconstruction at the hand of 
white violence and and redemption. Is that am I am I right? Is this is about the last five years that that has become a much more widespread view of the um, end of the Civil War? I have a couple theories about this. One I've written about. Uh, others I haven't as much. Um, the one I've written about is that I very much think that views of Grant specifically, but this period broadly rise and fall in tune with where the country is and in moments of deep reaction we uh often go to the kind of you know not quasi dunning school reconciliation focused um view of the war as a tragic mistake good men on all sides that sort of thing and in moments of rising concern with racial justice we tend to go towards the um you know, this was a war for emancipation. This was a war um, against uh, against tyranny. And I think we're in the latter moment, sort of even as our national politics are very much shaped by racial reaction, it's clear that the level of ordinary people, there's been a, a sea change in attitudes uh, when it comes to racial justice. Uh, and that, I think, is powering this more uncomplicated view. Um, the thing I haven't written about, and there's there's two parts to this. The first is that we're in some sense returning to the view of the war that emerged in the aftermath of the war. Like the for, for the twenty years after the Civil War, this was how people thought of the Civil War, at least in the North, and at least among African Americans, that this was a war uh, not just. Uh, to save the union, but it was a war to destroy slavery. It was a war to defend democracy for the world. There's a great book uh, called The Cause of All Nations, which is an international history of the Civil War. And it very much focuses on how um, international observers understood the war very much as uh, not just uh, a localized conflict in the Americas, but really kind of this is the test of whether democracy could last. And that that people at the time understood that. Um, If you want sort of contemporary sources, not contemporary, but but contemporary at the time sources on this. Karl Marx's journalistic writing on the Civil War is really great uh, on exactly this. He was a correspondent um, for a London paper and wrote very wrote extensively about the Civil War and its causes. And then, so I think we're kind of returning to an older view of this. And then as well, recent scholarship has just um, been, you know, really explored these dimensions of the war has really explored the extent to which um, uh, enslaved people and freed blacks and free blacks were really one of the driving forces behind the war becoming a war for emancipation. I've read about this last week, um, that if you are reading Civil War scholarship from the last three decades, which I guess is like recent in terms of academia, um, it's very much an emphasis on how enslaved people were the ones who forced this war onto the path that it took. So you have all this, you know, this stuff happening from above, from below, that I think you're right, Steve, is is driving um, a segment of the public toward this, I call it like kind of nationalistic view of the Civil War. Um, maybe a unionist view is a less like inflammatory way of putting that. But um, yeah. So having said that, I don't care about any statues of humans on horses and have a, have a hard time finding sympathy. I will confess to this group for having had a twinge when I read about Teddy Roosevelt this morning, not because I care a ton about 
Teddy Roosevelt, but because the American Natural History Museum in New York is just like a palace for people with children in New York. I've spent hours there every weekend. I will stipulate I never went past that statue because it's not stroller accessible. So I only went in around the side door and have been aware that there is a Teddy Roosevelt statue in front, but I've never looked at it. And so, you know, just feeling sentimental about the Natural History Museum as a place. I had a twinge of like, oh gosh, they're going to change it. What about the dinosaurs? And then of course, Jamal, the second you actually describe the statue and I call up a photo of it, which I don't really remember what it looks like. Like, it's not even just a statue to someone with who had problematic policies and views. It's like a racist statue just in an, <laughs> as an object. And of course it should come down. But what would you say to people who are having a queasy twinge or say, oh, I, well, of course, slavery was bad, but what about history? How, what, what would you tell them to, to detwingeify themselves? I, mean, I, I think I would say that the twinge is understandable, um, that I, there's nothing wrong with seeing something part of a landscape change and being conflicted about that or even thinking I don't I don't like the fact that it's changing and especially if it's changing by way of people tearing it down I also understand um, and sympathize with people who for whom that that's deeply uncomfortable um, the thing I would say not to mitigate it but just to things to keep in mind are um, first of all again you know I think a lot of Americans have this idea that American democracy has been this orderly process but you read <laughs> you read about you know mobs in the 1780s and 1790s you know um you read about the fact that american democracy in the 19th century especially before the civil war was more or less like a series of like organized mob actions um you think about the fact that mass politics throughout this country's entire history has been extremely messy and disorderly and then you look at what's happening now in that context and it's kind of typical it's not it's not something we haven't seen before um it's not it's fine to find it objectionable but it's also not some sea change in how americans are behaving so i would just ask people to keep that in mind and keep in mind as well that especially with regards to confederate monuments which were erected at times when, you know, large, you know, here in Charlottesville, for example, Charlottesville, Virginia, we have the Robert E. Lee, famous Robert E. Lee um, uh, monument. And when that was erected in 1924, um, most of Charlottesville is African-American and none of those people could participate in the political process. Uh, and so it's important to consider as well that the attempt to remove these things is as much about an integrated polity making a statement about what it thinks ought to be memorialized is about anything else. I don't think you can assuage people's discomfort, but I think you can try to put what's happening in context um, and also appeal to their value, to larger values, right? Like, do you want, you know, a bunch of your fellow citizens look at this thing and they don't see some a beautiful piece of art. They don't see someone to look up to. They see someone who fought for a cause um, to keep their ancestors or people like them uh, in, a, in perpetual bondage? Do you really want that to be in the public landscape? Um, or do you want something more inclusive, even that something that's more inclusive is just a pedestal without the statue? Mm -hmm. Well, Jamel, as always, it's just a 
a total pleasure to have you on the show and thank you so much for coming on this was great thank you for having me it is um i always i always enjoy uh jumping in the, the chat I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Center Stage is a movie from the year 2000. It's an American teen dance drama. It follows a cohort of young aspirers to American ballet greatness. They've all freshly matriculated at the American Ballet Academy, a loosely fictionalized version of ABT, we're led to assume, I think, in New York City. The movie stars Peter Gallagher, Amanda Scholl, Zoe Saldana, and Sasha Radetzky, among others. It's part fame, part flash dance. It's sort of all itself, though, I'd say. You know, it features a dance mom from hell, smart mouth with a heart of gold, apple-cheeked innocent from what feels like the Midwest. There's some talk of Indiana there. Uh, And it certainly does not skimp on either the dancing or the cheese. Let's listen to a clip. Let's be honest. You're not like most of the girls here. Your technique is nowhere near where it should be. Hey, newsflash, there's more to being a great dancer than perfect technique. Try dancing Swan Lake without it. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm hearing this. Look, you're really smart. If you send in your application now, you could get into a good college. I don't want to go to college, I want to dance. Yeah, so do a lot of people. Jesus, what, you went to a special bitch academy or something? I'm just trying to be honest. In my opinion, that's what friends do, tell each other the truth. I guess that explains why you have so many friends. If anyone asks, I'm in the library. Okay, Julia, I, I'm going to start with you, but if you don't mind, I'm just going to read out the reactions I had to this movie as, as they went along in my Word doc. Okay. Um, oh, God, here we go. Can I play this at one and a half times speed? <laughs> oh. Is, hold on, hold on. Is this a sex parable about tight hips question mark oh this movie's sweet omg <laughs> am i crying question mark <laughs> i love i love this movie i t- i mean i'm a dance dad i i completely fell for this movie you are in the not only not in a hot seat you are in the coolest seat in the house uh tell me why this movie comforts you <laughs> um why why does this movie comfort me well i was in my late teens i think when the 90s dance movie or maybe early 20s i can't remember there was like a spate of dance movies there was a brief heyday of dance movies in the late 90s and early aughts um with uh save the last dance and step up and step up to the streets and uh center stage and just in general it was a good moment for teen movies and then it was a good moment for that subset of the teen movie hot teens get together and figure out how to make out with each other while dancing which is really the only way to improve upon the teen movie um and i i was sort of a completist and i loved them all and this movie i just loved it and my sister and i watched it like 40 times watching it again i loved it just as much as ever and I would pinpoint its charms in a couple of key factors. One is every other person in it 
is a terrible actor. Like just truly, just just barely getting the line readings out. Mostly the people who aren't great actors are good dancers and that's why they've been chosen. Although not to a one. Sometimes they just seem to be just bad actors but don't bring necessarily specific dancing skills to the role. Um, because they emphasize dancing in the casting, I think the dance scenes are pretty good. Now I'm not a dancer and I'm curious for Dana, who I know is also a dance movie fan for her evaluation of this, but you know, in casting people like Ethan Stefel and real, you know, real ballerinas and ballerinos and, and dancers, the, the scenes, the, the dance scenes really carry. And in any like sport competition movie, the realer you can make the dance stuff or the, or the competition stuff, the, the sport, the better. And this movie like strongly emphasizes the dance over the acting. Um, second, all the actors who can actually act in the movie, you know, Peter Gallagher, um, Donna Murphy, who plays like a just wonderful, demanding, exacting ballet mistress, you can kind of see them. It's almost like a dance, right? Like they kind of have to extend their actorliness in a way that makes the unactorliness of the other people in the scenes that doesn't show them up too much and kind of makes it work. There's just sort of like a generosity and funny balance in those scenes that I love. And then all the romantic plots are just so dim and bubbly. <laughs> um, and I just love it. I can't really defend it, but I love it. Dana, dance aficionado, what'd you make of this? Had you seen it before? <laughs> no, I'd never seen it. I'm so grateful. I wish that I had seen it at the time because it, for one thing, I would have made my daughter watch it with me because, you know, she's a performer, mainly singer and actor, but also dancer and is about to go to a performing arts school, which is located around the corner from where this was mainly filmed, which was near Juilliard and Lincoln Center, etc. Um, so it has just that side. I mean, just sort of seeing that world, but it hits so many other of my sweet spots. I mean, it's a dance movie that has actual dance in it, right? Where you can see the actor's feet and you know that they are really doing the dancing and it's not a double dancing for them and entire sequences are shown so if you don't want to see if you don't like ballet you're definitely not going to like this movie because when they put on a show at the end you see not the whole show but you know several of the of the segments in real time so I really appreciated the quality of the dancing and the way that it was filmed um, but also I'm just so grateful Julia that you gave us a movie with low conflict low stakes, <laughs> where the big question is sort of like, who's going to get into the company? And, you know, who's going to end up with Jim, the nice guy who isn't a dancer? Um, and just, as you say, just these very goofy, sweet love stories where, you know, nobody's about to die. And, you know, I mean, just everything in the world right now is so heavy that I utterly, utterly understand this is a comfort escape movie. But I know that I will be watching this again, because it's, it's like, beautiful wallpaper. I mean, who can resist just watching dancers break in their shoes? That segment alone, I could watch all day, watching them, you know, take a file to their toe shoes and beat them against doors to try to soften them up. It's just so good. Yeah, no, it's exactly, it's like a weird combination of authenticity, corn pone, sort of charmingly wooden acting, superlative, superlative dancing. I mean, it, it just, it really blew me away on that score. I am a total dance dad. The thing that my youngest daughter takes seriously is ballet. And, you know, she's done it for 10 years now, I guess. She's 14. She's on point. She has to break in the shoes. She's got to burn the shoes in that special strategic way that I don't quite understand. And uh, she's dance Clara and the Nutcracker. I mean, this has been a huge, huge part of my life. And so I 
do not aspire to judge this movie critically. I, I just loved watching it. I know she had seen it already, but it was like I was watching her with her. And so it's just, it's like emotional. It's weird. It's, 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 um, anyway. But one thing I would say is that some of the comfort and, and, um, innocence of the movie comes from the fact it's a pre 9 11 movie. And it's a pre 9 11 movie about young people in New York City. And that story just can't ever be told again in the same way. I mean, maybe one day, but not, not in the foreseeable future. I mean, you know, this is a relic of a time when, you know, you could make a movie about young people in New York City utterly without a kind of horrible pathos or irony as a coping mechanism for what's been lost, you know, which really, thanks to The Daily Show and various other things, became the go-to coping mechanism for a public life that's a total shambles. And so, of course, watching a movie like this now is totally comforting, in addition to the fact that it hits all of these genre rhythms without an ounce of irony. The bad acting almost in a, we- in a weird way helps its authenticity or at least its earnestness um, and makes that earnest- earnestness feel quite quite believable. Yes, Steve, I had not consciously thought of 9-11 as a marker while watching it, but I did think about how long ago the year 2000 seemed and what a different world the movie seemed to be taking place in. And I think the main thing that I felt was missing from the world that we would live in now in a, in a movie about young dancers coming to New York is social media and phones, you know, smartphones. Um, I mean, there was the idea that there was all this intrigue and hooking up and the kind of teen romance angle and that there was there was nobody texting or sexting each other and that they were all just kind of walking down the street having conversations. I mean, it just makes you realize in 20 years how profoundly the world and also the landscape of New York has changed. I noticed that the, the theater they perform in, which is in fact the, the theater that New York City Ballet performs in was still called the New York State Theater, which is still what I call it because it's now named after David Koch and I refuse to say his name in connection with that great theater. But it made me think about, yeah, how the capital has changed the landscape of New York since then. Of course, 9-11. I mean, mm-hmm. just the entire world has turned around and yet it's the year 2000. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I had not thought about the New Yorkiness, but it, it's as grounded in New York as in the dance world. And I think that's part of its charm. Um and then I do, there are just, the writing is, there There are so many lines in here that I know by heart in the way that you know any movie that's a comfort movie a little bit by heart. But like, you know, that line from the clip we heard about, would you go to a special bitch academy? Like there's just, there's a lot of good, bad, good, bad quotables in here, um, which were fun to revisit. Julia? Yes. Whatever you feel, just dance it. <laughs> okay just promise me that this movie in my estimation segues perfectly into roadhouse <laughs> the swayze joint the sway the greatest movie ever made oh my god is talking that about roadhouse is such a great idea i think dana we might have to when my pick comes around I mean, I, I can't bend from my pick. I'm so happy about my pick this week that I can't I can't switch to Roadhouse, but I will trust that you'll bring it bring it to us in the future. Got it. Deal. What's your pick, Dana? All right. Well, my pick is actually something that Julia suggested. It a little bit occupies the place that Center Stage probably does for her, where I think, well, that movie's special to me, but do I really want to inflict it on others? <laughs> but here we go. <laughs> I'm inflicting. And it is from 1996, directed by Jeanne Debont, Twister, one of the great... Yay! (laughs) One of the great disaster movies of our time, and really one of those movies that just so, so perfectly toes the line between uh, camp corniness and actual goodness. 
Uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime, and I'm sure it's streaming lots of other places too. But really, who are you if you don't own a hard physical copy of the of the great film Twister? Mm. All right, dance the shit out of it. That's all I ask. <laughs> all right, moving on. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. All right, now is the moment of the podcast uh, where we endorse Dana. What do you have? You know what? I'm actually I had a, I had an endorsement that is somewhat evergreen that I'm going to wait for a future week because I was inspired when we had that conversation with Jamel today in our segment on Confederate statues to endorse something that every week I think I should endorse this because it's really wonderful and that is Jamel Bowie's newsletter. Do either of you subscribe to it? I do not. No, but I but I will. I will. I, I think you can that. do it through the Times, but it's not a Times publication. It's just, you know, his own private newsletter. And I'm sure you guys both know that Jamel is great at social media, right? I mean, he has a wonderful Instagram. He puts up his own photographs that he takes with analog cameras. He puts up lots of recipes. He's a, he seems like a great cook. And, uh, and his newsletter is about all those things. There's just there's a lot of newsletters I subscribe to and like when I read them, but getting them is sort of a drag. I don't actually love the form of the email newsletter, even from a writer that you really like and you want to follow. There's just something tiresome about email, right, and having to open another email. But Jamel's, I never fail to open. It comes at the end of the week, and he has a very stable format, which I appreciate, where he sort of starts off with a little mini essay about what's going on that week. Then he links to any work that he's published then he puts up some photographs that he's taken maybe around town or some photographs he's taken in the past. And then at the bottom, he has a recipe. And uh, when it arrives, it just always feels like, ah, oh, it's the end of the week. I believe he sends it on, on Fridays. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll cook Jamel's recipe. There's just something really homey and sweet about his newsletter. And it's also really newsy um, with links to other people's writing as well. So apparently you can get to it through the Times website. So we'll put a link there on the show page for this week. Superb. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Okay, my endorsement is uh, for those of you out there with families trying to figure out how to occupy your summers. There is the card game Uno, very good beginner card game for kids before they learn about card cards. Um, They make waterproof Uno. The cards are like little flexible laminated plastic chits and they all hang on like a key ring. So essentially you can bring Uno to the beach or like put it in a backyard slip and slide and somehow play Uno while damp. And I didn't think this was a function I needed in my life before I had kids the age I had. I'd never really felt the need to play Uno at all, much less to play it slightly wet. But um, it weirdly comes in handy. Waterproof Uno, that's my endorsement. All right, well, this week I'm going to endorse two things that I've been meaning to get to for forever and finally have started. I'm not very far into either one, but I am so totally, totally captivated. I can tell. I, I, I mean, I love them both unreservedly. The first is finally, Dan Coyce broke me down. I'm 120 pages into Wolf Hall. It is ah. so, so, so good. It's so good. I mean, I can't. I, among its many pleasures, I mean, first of all, the language is incredible. The uh, plotting, the characterizations, the world, the whole thing is masterly. I mean, it's just an absolute, complete masterpiece of historical fiction, literary fiction. But to me, almost as exhilarating as the idea 
over a million people bought this thing? Did they really read it and love it? I mean, it apparently, right? I mean, it's a phenomenon. It is a global phenomenon. So the answer is yes. But, you know, for every time your heart in your life, your heart has sunk at what is popular, you know, and what isn't, that this has been a global bestseller is just remarkable. I mean, she's just, Mantel is a, a genius. She's writing at the highest level. It's it's actually not that easy to follow. I mean, I don't want to put anybody off of it, but it's not as though I don't find myself rereading paragraphs or going back to the um, the the um, the key at the beginning of it, which the tells genealogy you genealogy chart. Yeah, the yeah, genealogy no, chart. I, I tried to read it in Kindle on a vacation, and it was no. like terrible because you need to read it in print where you can dog ear the chart at the beginning. I mean, again, I, I only read the first one in part because it was a thick enough read that I felt like I needed a proper, you know, uninterrupted week to really get lost in the world. And so I haven't read the follow-ups, but I definitely intend to um, <sighs> as soon as those uninterrupted weeks arrive that, I'm, that I've been waiting for. <laughs> oh, yes, they were right around the corner for you, I'm sure. But then the other is yeah. that is... Uh, the French television show, The Bureau. Have you, either of you dived no. into this at all? Oh my God. This no. is, so again, I'm only two episodes in, but uh, the, I, I, I'd heard about it and then the Times did something on it. It was clear the time was to time, time had come to check it out. It is so good. It's a French spy thriller. But uh, to me, the hook is in addition to just being incredibly beautifully and um, sharply directed and the performances are wonderful. The actors are tremendous. It's very sexy, but it's based on, many, many real life accounts of what it is to work for the um uh the Directorate General for External Security, the DG, whatever, of France, like their equivalent of the CIA. And so it has this incredible air of authenticity that this is the actual procedural, every tiny little procedural nicety of being in this security service seems to be authentically represented in the show. Whether it is or isn't, I don't know. But to a viewer, it certainly feels as though they did massively did their homework, and apparently they did. Additionally, it has that thing that Le Carre does, which is you understand that everything people in a work environment like that say and do is both strategic, could signal any one of a number of things about their status as an agent, a double agent, a triple agent, or a person with any kind of you know private agenda, unannounced agenda, and is a chess move in a longstanding careerist battle with others in such a workplace. I mean, it's a meticulous workplace drama. I I just couldn't love it more. I mean, I I feel as though I'm embarking on something that will be the equivalent of all the great you know multi-season TV shows out there and it's from the French, right? I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, how often do they make great TV, even though one loves to be plunged back into the sexiness of the French mind and world. So the Bureau so far, I am completely, completely captivated by it. All right. Two good recs. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. I love it. I really do love it when you email us at culturefest at slate.com. I hope I'm not too far behind on responding. I typically do. I will really try this week to catch up, but please do drop us a note there. Interact with us on Twitter. It's uh, Our feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us. Stay safe, and we will see you soon. 